All right. Well, we're, that's the title of the sermon today is Thoughts on Suffering and Grieving. And uh, so I've asked three people. Uh, matter of fact, I had a, had a, had a little uh, different scenario last hour, but I've asked three folks to come in and just share their thoughts on the grieving process, and I want to introduce them to you. First of all, this is Chris Murphy, uh, who uh, lost her father to suicide uh, when she was younger, and then this is uh, Tina, and Tina Landry uh, went through a divorce uh, not real long ago, and then this is Charles Masoner, who lost a son. And so I've asked them uh, to help me uh, in this process of this sermon. Um, I, m- many of you may not know this, but I was a I was associate chaplain when I got out of college, and then I still serve as a police chaplain. And uh, on top of that, I've probably done close to 200 funerals. And I've heard a lot of people say things that, um, quite frankly, I wish they would not have said. I'm not talking about the person who's suffering. I'm talking about well-meaning people who are trying to help. And, uh, And so I have a long time wanted to do a sermon like this. And quite frankly, this is a topical sermon. I want to go ahead and tell you that right now. Uh, those of you who'd like to judge me, go ahead. Uh, but we're doing a topical sermon today. And how do we handle, how do we minister to people who are grieving? How do we help people who are going through the suffering process? And so uh, I wanted to ask them uh, to give you a couple of things. Uh, I'm asking them individually. For the first question is, what, are, what is something that was said or done that was not helpful In other words, you wish people would not have done or said that. And the second question I'm going to ask them, what is something that was said or done that did minister to you, that did help you in your grieving process? So I'm going to start with Chris Murphy. And Chris, uh, what, what is something that was said or done that was not particularly helpful that maybe even you wish, you know what, wish this would not have happened? Well... For me, I'm a little different than everyone else on the panel. This happened when I was a teenager. And so I'm a kid, you know, looking for answers, trying to figure things out. And um, I lose my dad very suddenly and very shamefully. Um, And one of the things that when Ron asked me that, the first thing I thought was, wow, you know, people have such good intentions. um, But oftentimes the intention is meaningless. It's what actually happens and what they actually say. One thing that was really hard for me um, was when people would tell me that it was part of God's plan or that they would try to give me any kind of theology. And, and while that's true, um, and while they were trying to be helpful, there's not, that's not the time um, right in the midst of suffering because I'm a teenager looking for answers. And then the other thing that I thought of, um, my father's death was there was a lot of shame involved. And a lot of times people just don't know what to do. Um, we've all been there. And I had several times where I saw people avoid us, um, avoid my mom or friends that were her friends. And then they, they kind of dropped away. And so I would say just people that would avoid us. I, I'd rather someone say the wrong thing than say nothing or just disappear. Tina? Well, I think for me, I would echo what you say, too. The, the shame that comes with um, divorce, you're now part of a club that you didn't choose to be in. And, um, and I think the well intentions of people saying, oh, but there's somebody else out there that's wonderful for you. <laughs> and all along, you're like, Mr. Wonderful just walked out the door. <laughs> and so there is that shame and, the, you know, like you said, well intentioned, but it's, it's just not the right thing to say at that time. Charles? Mm-hmm. Twelve years ago, um, my son was diagnosed with uh, a brain tumor, and the one thing that sticks out, I mean, 
even today, and it's crystal clear, is people just avoiding the situation and walking away from it. And there's nothing that you're going to be able to say or do that's going to take the pain away. But just turning your back and walking away is something that's extremely hurtful. And then also, it just, you know, it's the small things that make a big difference. And if you don't have anything to say, just pat them on the back so we're thinking about you. All right, so we've talked about things that were not helpful. Let's talk about things that were helpful that people said or did that ministered to you and made an impact in a positive way. For me, um, I, I still, I grew up here, and so I still have people today that will come up to me and say my very favorite thing. They'll say, I have not forgotten. And even when you think that there's this extended period of grief and it's time to move on, we don't move on. Um, Saying that you haven't forgotten and recognizing that it doesn't go away, even just saying, I'm sorry, and and that's it, period. You don't have to say anything else. That is so meaningful. Um, And then one other thing that just still is just hugely impactful to me is when... um, People have chosen to follow up with me over time. Um, you know, I try to make a practice of it, and I, I fail a lot, but I try really hard to remember that in the midst of um, right there during the funeral or during that week, a lot of times um, there's a lot of people around. There's a lot of family around. It's the next week. It's two months later. It's six months later when I've moved on with my life, but this person that's suffering and the one that sat in the front row of the funeral, they haven't. And so whenever I would get a card or a note, um, or even just someone would see me even in the grocery store and make that effort to come up to me and go, you know what, I remember you your dad. He said this to me. You know what, you know how he impacted my life? He gave me this. And for me, I had this small little pocket of memories that I hung on to as a kid. And when somebody would come up and give me a memory that, that they had of my dad, um, it was like they just gave me this gift a new memory that I got to hang on to, and it was super meaningful that they would take the time to do that. I think the small group that I was in was um, was so instrumental in ministering to me and being those 2 a.m. friends that understands that sometimes you're more mad than sad, sometimes you're more sad than mad, and they just let you. They just let you cry. They let you vent. They just, without judging, they just understand that that's just what happens. And then just the practical, just helping me. All of a sudden, being a single mom, there was a lot of transition that was taking place of selling, buying houses, finding a job, providing for my daughter, and and they were just there. And, and I just knew that I wouldn't be left on the street, you know, and um, just having that comfort in those just the practical taking care of things for me. There's two people that, um, that I will remember what they've done for our family. Uh, one person I didn't know, and I'm going to start with them. Um, didn't know, lost my son, funeral, and then that's when reality hits you. And, um, uh, This individual took the time and effort when they didn't even know our family to, for about the first three months, about every two weeks, a card would show up at our house and it'd say, thinking about you, 
praying for you. Is there anything that you need? Um, the next one would be, just want to let you know that God loves you. Quick little verse. If you need anything, let us know. This went on for about the first three months, about every two weeks. And after that, about once a month. And then the next year was birthdays and uh, the day that uh, Jared passed away. But this person didn't even know our family. But it made a huge impact because though the first year, I was just putting one foot in front of the other, taking a deep breath, getting up every day, hoping that I had enough uh, strength to make it through. The next one is a very good friend of mine that didn't turn his back and did exactly the same thing whether it be a text or a phone call. But all he did was, hey, we're thinking about you today. We're praying for you today. We love you, brother. Is there anything that you need? That's it. Nothing, nothing much more. Some days I'd call him bawling, and I'd take him up on it. Other days I'd send back a text, say thanks today, feeling okay. But it's the little things that just make such a huge impact on people's lives. God didn't come to me in some vision or some dream and say everything's going to be perfect and all that. You know, God uh, truly does talk through his word, the Bible, and in people. And it's the small things that just make such a huge difference. And there's not one thing you can say to when somebody's walking through the valley that's going to make them jump up and say, man, everything's great, because that's not reality. And uh, I'm just so thankful and blessed that somebody that didn't even know us took the time to do that, and then somebody that I've known for many, many years just took the time, 30, 45 seconds, a few times, you know, a few times a month just to reach out, and it makes a big difference. Thank you, guys. Appreciate it. Well, <clears throat> thoughts on grieving and suffering. If there's anybody I would look to in the scriptures as an example, it would be a guy named Jeremiah. He's known as the weeping prophet. Of course, we could talk about Job, and we'll mention Job's friends here in just a moment. But Jeremiah is not a man that we talk about a lot. But I want to read you a, a passage uh, about, by Jeremiah. Jeremiah, a man who was called by God when he was approximately 17 or 18 years of age. A young man whom God is calling to go out and to preach a message that's not going to be received. He tells Jeremiah, look, Jeremiah, judgment is coming unless the people repent, but they're not going to repent. But I want you to go and be faithful anyway. And while you're being faithful, I want you to rec- I want to ask you this. I want to tell you this. You're, I'm going to ask you not to marry, not to have children, and to recognize that you're going to suffer, that people are going to reject the message that I give you and that destruction is coming upon the people. How would, you be, how would you like to hear that message? That's the message that Jeremiah has given. In Jeremiah, in Lamentations chapter 3, verse 17 through 24, and I'm going to read the New Living Translation, says this, Peace has been stripped away, and I've forgotten what prosperity is. I cry out, my splendor is gone. Everything I'd hoped for from the Lord is lost. The thought of my suffering and homelessness Homelessness is bitter beyond words. I will never forget this awful time as I grieve over my loss. Yet I still dare to hope when I remember this. The faithfulness of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to end. Great is thy faithfulness. His mercies are fresh and new every morning. I say to myself, the Lord is my inheritance. Therefore, I will hope 
in him. Thoughts on suffering and grieving. Um, when I did chaplaincy, uh, one of the first books we, st- we studied uh, was a book called Kubler-Ross uh, on death and dying, or Kubler-Ross is actually uh, the author. And um, she wrote a book called Death and Dying, which is kind of the standard in chaplaincy today. And it expresses and shows the five stages of grief uh, that virtually everyone goes through when they experience a significant loss. And the first one is shock and denial. Uh, When the death happens or when the disease is given or when the relationship is severed, you go into a coping mechanism known as denial. You just stop for a while. The world just stops for a moment. And that's how you initially cope with it. Second is anger. You get angry. You get angry at God. You get angry at the person who died. You get angry at the doctor because they couldn't do more. You get angry at the pastor because he doesn't know anymore. You get angry at somebody. And you just kind of go through that spirit of, of anger. And that's part of the process. And then you begin to bargain. If the person, uh, the relationship, if the person still exists, you start to bargain and say, if only, I, I will do this, God, or I'll do this if you'll do this, or I'll do that, or I'll do, I'll do something else. And if the person has already gone, then you still do the bargaining, and you go, well, you do it in this manner. You go, if, if only, if only I'd have done this, if only if I'd said this, if only I'd done this while we were still together, if only we'd gone to the doctor, if only we hadn't done, if, it's my fault, if only and you begin to bargain. And then comes the next step, depression. That's what Jeremiah was in. Read through the book of Jeremiah. Read through Lamentations. This man was depressed, okay? He shows all the signs. It's, it's, can I just tell you this right now? It's not a sin to be depressed. It's not a sin. And if you've heard that on TV or a book, throw the book away and quit watching that TV. Just change the station, take it off your cable, Mark an X through that guy, okay? Because that's not reality. It only means, if you're not depressed, is that you haven't lost someone close enough to you yet. That's the bad news. Aren't you glad you came to Rock Point today? All right? That's just part of the grieving process, okay? So depression does come in. And then acceptance. Now, what is acceptance? Let, Let me be clear what acceptance is not. It's not that you go... I'm great. <laughs> I'm okay. Everything's great now. That's not acceptance. Uh, that's called um, denial. You're right back to stage one, okay? That's called artificiality. What acceptance is, is you come to a place where you recognize, you know what? This is where I am. This is what it is. I'm coming to grips with the reality. My life is different. Things are going to be different. This is a different chapter. This is a different phase. And that's what acceptance looks like. Now, the Bible speaks about suffering, and I want to give you a few passages of Scripture that I think are meaningful in regards to suffering and grieving. Psalms 34, 18, The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Psalms 22, 24, For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, and he has not hidden his face from him, but he has heard when he has cried to him. 
Isaiah 43, 2. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned. And the flame shall not consume you. As we look at these thoughts on suffering and grieving, I think it's important for us to understand uh, a couple things about suffering. First of all, why is there suffering? We don't have time to really get into this, but I want to give you uh, two uh, philosophical understandings of suffering to begin with. The first one is this. There's what we call a natural progression of creation. Natural progression of creation. What does that mean? Well, that means that you're going to age. These are inevitable facts that will happen. Uh, you're going to die, and people that you know and love are going to die. You're going to get sick, and people you love are going to get sick. And you're going to be in the hospital. And your children at some point are going to grow up, and they're going to leave. Natural disasters occur. Accidents occur. These are natural progressions of creation. It's the result of us living in a fallen world. And these are things that simply are going to happen. It's not God making them happen. It's not God punishing you. They're natural progressions of creation. Number two, spiritual deprivation. We live uh, in a morally depraved world. Sin has infected all of us. And sometimes the sin of others causes us great pain. Sometimes our sin causes us great pain. Because we live in a sinful and fallen world, it impacts innocent people sometimes. And then sometimes God chooses to use pain. God directs pain. And we see that in the life of Job. But we need to be careful about saying this is happening because God is doing this. God is doing that. Unless you're a prophet and God has given you divine inspiration, infallible inspiration. Um, and by the way, the Bible's already written. He's not doing that to you right now. Uh, you need to be careful about what you say. And I want us to look at a couple of good examples on people who helped people in their grieving process and a bad example. The best one, of course, is Ruth. Ruth is, to me, the epitome, the example of someone who helped and really, truly ministered in a time of suffering. I want to pick up in verse uh, 6, and you know the story. Uh, Ruth is the daughter-in-law of Naomi. Naomi and her husband leave the Bethlehem area, uh, and they go into the Moabite area because of a famine. They get there. Uh, they uh, have two sons. Their sons marry two Moabite women. Uh, the, the husband dies. And then the two sons die. So now it's just Naomi and her two daughter-in-laws. Orpha, uh, by the way, which is whom Oprah was named after. Simply her mother misspelled her name. Uh, that's a true story. And then there's Ruth. And we pick up here in verse 6. And it says, Then she arose with her daughter-in-laws to return from the country of Moab. For she had heard that the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people had given them food. So she set out from the, the place where she was with her two daughter-in-laws, and they went on their way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughter-in-laws, Go and return each of you to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with me and the dead with me. And the Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. 
Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept, and they said, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. And if I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters. For it's exceedingly bitter for me, for your sake, for the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept, and Orpha kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. Ruth stayed with her, and she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. And where you die, I will die. And there I will be married. I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me more also, if anything but death parts me from you. If you want to see a picture of commitment, Ruth gives us a beautiful picture of commitment. We see in the story in the book of Ruth, her faithfulness, her faithfulness to her mother-in-law, her faithfulness to what she believes is right. We see her humility. It's not that she thinks less of herself. She simply thinks of herself less. And she's righteous. And as we go through the book, she's industrious. So we see Ruth is a great minister. She's faithful. She's humble. She's righteous. And she's industrious. But then we see an example, the antithesis of Ruth in Job's friends. We see the wrong picture. Now, we see Job's friends starting off right in chapter 2, verse 11. They come and they make an appointment to show sympathy and comfort to Job for about a week. They're there with him. And let me tell you something. Job's friends do a great job of helping him until they open their mouth. That's when it all ends. Because then they start trying to speak for God because they think they know what's going on. Job's friends were wrong, though. The, The things they were right about is they were... They, they had a high sovereignty level of God, a high view of God. But they were wrong in trying to interpret Job's pain for him. We see, first of all, from Eliphaz in Job's 4, 7, that he believed that God, was, uh, God does not allow the innocent to suffer. And we see it right here. He doesn't believe that the innocent suffer. But we know that's not true. Job, in fact, is suffering because he is righteous. We see in Job chapter 8, verse 3 and 4, that uh, Bildad actually blames Job's children because of their children's transgressions and your transgressions, Job. That's why you're suffering. And then in Job chapter 11, verse 20, we see that Zophar says, Job, the problem is, is you've not properly repented. You've not repented and, and, and confessed your sin. That's why you're suffering. And God has some pretty strong things to say to them. Because what they don't realize is that it's the righteousness of Job that has caused his suffering. So we see that you enter into two different phases with people when they're in crisis. The first phase is this. It's sympathetic agreement. Now, what do we mean by that? That's when you, when they're in that crisis, they're in that uh, that pain, and you simply just agree with them. You just simply tell them you're sorry. And that you're there. You don't try to correct their thinking. You don't try to correct their theology. You don't try to say, well, I don't know that that's biblically right. 
I don't know that that's right. I don't know that that's a good outlook. I think you need to change your attitude. It's not that time. It's a time where you listen and you grieve. It's what Job's friends did the first week. It's when they started trying to interpret and to counsel and correct that the problem came. So sympathetic agreement, recognizing in that initial pain that you're just to be there to love and listen and to give sympathy. And later on, as you move through that process, once you've been in sympathetic agreement with them for a while and they know that you love them, then you can maybe sympathetically, again, using the word sympathetically, disagree when they say, I can't make it. I can't take another step. Yes, you can. Yes, you can. God's forgotten me. No, he hasn't. That's the time. But we just need to recognize God hasn't called us to be a prophet to the broken. Now, I want to give you some things that you can say, or excuse me, I want to, in times of suffering, some things that you don't want to say. And all of these are things that people have said. Uh, I've talked to numerous people the last couple of weeks who have lost loved ones or who have been in great suffering. And these are direct quotes from them and some that I've just heard before. And these are things that I would encourage you not to say. Be strong. Hey, I don't need to hear that right now. What, what am I supposed to do? Oh, okay. I'm strong now. I'm Superman. I know exactly what you feel. No, you don't. You don't know exactly what they feel. You might say, well, I, I lost someone. Yeah, and everybody's experience is different. Don't invalidate their pain by saying, I know exactly where you are right now. Uh, this is just God's will. Chris mentioned that. This, ju- this is just God's plan. While that may be true, that is not helpful. That does not help me go, oh, well, I feel much better. That brings my children right back. I guess I'll be okay. I'll whistle Dixie on and out of here. What, what does that mean? I know someone who lost even more than you. That's a stupid thing to say, just so you know. If you said that, take a stupid pill. If you really have faith, you'd be healed. Oh, really? Did God heal Job's children? There's a reason for everything. You can always have another one. I was talking to a couple of ladies this week, and they said one of those difficult things when people say, one of the ladies said, she said, I had somebody tell me, she had recently lost her husband. She said, I had somebody tell me, he said, well, how old are you? She goes, first of all, I didn't want to ask that, answer that question. And so I begrudgingly told him how old I was, and then he said, oh, well, then you'll be fine. You can get somebody else. Uh, both of our late, matter of fact, the lady that was on the panel last hour said the same thing. That's, that's a difficult thing. And I, I know we're trying to think logically, but this is not a logic time. This is a, a grieving time. Um, God wanted your loved one to be with them. Um, their job was done here. God will not give you more than you can handle. Look at all the things you do have. Look on the bright side. God needed another flower in his garden. That, that one, you just, that just needs to be taken out completely. Like God has some kind of garden. Um, remember all the things work together for your good. Don't question God. God is preparing you for something better. Or how about this one? God is preparing you for something worse. Wouldn't that be encouraging to hear? No, you lost your children, but God's preparing you for something worse. Healing is a choice. This is really a blessing in disguise. 
Any statement that starts with at least or you should, when a person is in that grieving process, in that crisis, those are not encouraging things to say. So how should we minister to someone who's suffering? First of all, do you hear what they all said? Don't avoid. Don't run away. You may not know what to say, and that's okay. You just, like, just give me a pat. Just acknowledge I'm here. Recognize me. Don't run away from me. Be present. Listen. Pray God's word, and let me know, hear that. Don't try to fix it. Help. Help me practically. Fix my sink, mow my lawn, feed my dog, feed my kids, feed my husband. Include others to help you in this process. And most of all, don't have expectations. This one, Chris and I talked about this, and this is one I've dealt with several times that I just, I really need you to hear this. When someone has lost someone when they're in significant crisis, that ain't your time, brother. It's not your time, okay? So the, can I tell you the worst thing you can do is have expectations. Well, I called them, and they've not called me back, so I'm not calling anymore. I wrote them a note, and they didn't even acknowledge it. Or, you know, I tried to tell them about my experience, and they didn't even seem to want to listen. You know what you're doing? You're making it about you. Lose all your... If you really are serious about helping and want to make an impact, lose your expectations. Realize they probably won't call you back. They're not going to send you a thank you note because they don't even... They don't even know what happened, okay? This guy, it, it, your house just got destroyed by a tornado, and you're asking them, hey, did, do you have what, a napkin in there that I could buy? I mean, it's a ridiculous statement at that point, okay? So just lose your expectations of what you're going to get. It's not about you. Well, you know what? I... I got, I got caught. They didn't even call me when that happened. I just went to a funeral this week, and the lady said, she said, um, you know, I'm so sorry I didn't call you. I'm going, don't call me unless you want to. And, and I heard from her, I said, you know, don't let anybody put that expectation on you that you needed to call. And, and I've literally been in situations <clears throat> where people got mad because they didn't get called first. You need to go to counseling if that's you, okay? I just want to tell you, if you're still mad about it, you need to go see a counselor, and I'll give you one. You can talk to me, and then I'll send you a real one. Words that do help or that can help. I know you're hurting, and I can't imagine what you're going through. I'm really sorry. That's the simple and easiest thing that you can say. Use the person's name and just say, I wish I had the right words to say, but I just want you to know I care. I'm praying specifically that something I will always remember about them is if you knew them. Here's my cell phone number. Call me day or night. I'll be here and then be willing to be there. I will be here at blank. I'm going to do this for you. I'm going to come feed your dog every day for the next month unless you tell me not to. I'm going to come mow your lawn every week unless you tell me not to. I, after all this food's run out right here, I'm not doing any food for you right now because everybody else is doing it, but in two weeks, every Friday, I'm going to have dinner here for you. Whatever it is that you decide to do, that, that will minister more than you can ever imagine. Um, how, ask, just ask them, how are things going? If you don't know what else to say, and just listen and let them know that you have not forgotten them. 
actions that help. Take, take initiative and anticipate needs, attend a funeral, shop for things that they need, help with arrangements, ask if you can have their number forwarded to you because they're not going to want to answer 100 calls. And then there are those dysfunctional people that are mad because you're not answering their phone calls. And you can handle those. Uh, help with bills, do housework, offer to drive them wherever they need to go, take care of their pet, go with them to the support meeting, go on a walk with them, take them lunch. Remember the special days are the hardest. Pray and write emails to let them know that you prayed for them. And make a note on your calendar to call them on special times. So if I could wrap it up into three things, I'd say this. Number one, don't avoid. Number two, don't give easy answers. And number three, be a servant. And just pray for them. It's really that simple. I want to go back to what I read starting off from Jeremiah. As Jeremiah says, peace has been stripped away and I have forgotten what prosperity is. I cry out, my splendor is gone. Everything I'd hoped from from the Lord is lost. The thought of my suffering and homelessness is bitter beyond words. I will never forget this awful time and as I grieve over my loss, yet I dare to hope when I remember this. The faithful love of the Lord never ends. His mercies never come to an end. Great is thy faithfulness. His mercies are fresh and new for every morning. I say to myself, the Lord is my inheritance. Therefore, I will hope in him.